We remain standing for the reading of the gospel. And I'd like for you to use your imagination today as I read. I want you to imagine you're at a theater where the drama on the stage is live. It's very real, has consequences for the people on the stage. And in the orchestra pit, those first several rows, they're the first hearers of Mark's gospel. And for them, what takes place on that stage is very real and has consequences in real life for them. And in the balcony, we're there. And what this gospel reading means to the people in the orchestra pit, we may see it differently. Perhaps we will not. Beginning at the 21st verse of the fifth chapter. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and besought him, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there there was a woman who'd had a flow of blood for 12 years and who'd suffered much under many physicians. And had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I shall be made well. And immediately the hemorrhage ceased And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone forth from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who'd done it. But the woman, knowing what had been done to her, came in fear and trembling, And fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, he saw tumult and people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a tumult and weep? And the child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and walked, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Be seated, please.
If I close my eyes, I can still hear his voice. His name was Matt, fond of wearing pointy-toed cowboy boots and big belt buckles. But what he said to me on the phone that morning was, it looks like it's about that time. In reference to his son, who would die that day from leukemia, the words are etched in my memory for their sheer helplessness and brokenness. And I imagine Jairus sounded that way. This man who is an authority, this religious person, this dignified person, this prosperous person who comes before Jesus on his knees and says, it looks like it's that time for my little girl. Do you see? Breath coming in deep gasps, brimming eyes averted on his knees, pleading. Children were not highly valued so much then. Female children, even less so. And he uses this term of endearment, my little daughter. Push has come to shove, he's done everything he can, and the helplessness of it all is just smothering. And for Jairus, what really matters has bubbled up, not from his brain, not from his protocol, not from his traditions, but from his heart and soul. And what matters is his 12-year-old daughter. And for Mark's audience in the orchestra pit, Jairus is like so many of the religious leaders who persecute them. And here, the powerful come asking for mercy. I wonder what they thought. He's risked the loss of respect from his social peers to solicit the help of this vagabond prophet. Hear his voice. Come lay your hands on my daughter that she might live. And without a word, Jesus sets out toward his home. And his walking in that direction affirms Jairus' desperate reach across these boundaries that affirm, that, that defined rather, where you sought help when you were desperate. It's hard for us to imagine that a 12-year-old's living and dying could be seen as such an issue. But maybe it's not hard for us at all, given what takes place at our borders. Lurking in the crowd, there is a desperate woman, desperate because she has been ill for 12 years, and chronic illness just wears you down. Bleeding for 12 years, constantly defined as unclean, unacceptable for worship. And she is the exact opposite of Jairus. Someone the folks in the orchestra pit could identify with. He's male, she's female. He's prosperous, she spent all that she had. He has authority, she has none. He is an advocate for his daughter. She has nobody speaking for her. The crowd is with Jairus, and she is alone in the crowd. He's open in his asking, and she's too ashamed to ask openly. Been sick for 12 years. The same length of time Jairus' daughter has been alive. And both are getting worse. 
and both need something from this Jesus, as did the people in the orchestra pit. No doubt she's heard Jesus' conversation with Jairus. He's heard the plea for his daughter, and I can't imagine she wants to delay healing for the child. But this is her chance, maybe her only chance, maybe her only opportunity, and she needles her way through the crowd with faulty thinking, if I can just grab hold of his cloak, I'll be well. What's she doing? There's an old black and white movie called The Elephant Man. It tells the true story of one John Merrick, a man whose face is hideously deformed. And the emotionally deformed put him in a sideshow and charged money just to see him. And when he goes out in public, rather than the ridicule, he wears a bag over his head with one eye so he can see at least a little bit. But people make fun of him when he goes out. And there's a boy who uses a pea shooter and keeps shooting at him. He tries to flee from this menacing crowd and making fun of him. And he tries to run and he trips over a little girl and knocks her down because you can't see much when that's all you can see. And the crowd turns angry and they chase him into a a public restroom and push him up against a wall in that place where we discard human waste. And in fear of his life, he cries out, I am not an animal. I am a human being. I think this gesture, this grabbing at the cloak of Jesus, is a desperate attempt to define herself again as a human being. It's what Mark's readers wanted. Folks whose clothes are in tatters, who look around nervously at every noise for fear of discovery. Just grab a hold of this cloak. And she feels this difference inside. And she knows immediately things have changed for her. No longer will she be excluded from the hub of the social community or from the religious community or from worship. Now she can have access too. But Jesus messes it all up. He stops and says, who touched me? And the eye rolling begins from the disciples. Jesus, it's a crowd. Everybody's bumping you and touching you. Jesus ignores them and continues looking around. And she steps forward and falls on her knees. And it's just like Mark in writing to this audience to place her on her knees in front of Jesus just like Jairus was a few moments ago. And she's scared. And she's trembling. She knows the rules. She's been defined as unclean and her touch makes Jesus unclean. Even jeopardizing what Jesus might do for Jairus' daughter. And so that powerful man is there looking on And she vomits her whole story of guilt and shame and illness and fear and yet of hope. Why does he do this? 
calling her out in front of everybody? Wouldn't it just be kinder to let her just slip off away? Wish her well. Because she needs to hear something for the healing to be complete. And it starts with a simple word, daughter. Maybe it's because we have two daughters. That word is special to me. He says to her daughter, for 12 years defined as unclean and unacceptable and the temptation to define yourself as less than is just overwhelming. And here he says, daughter. My wife and I sometimes binge watch. Okay, we watch, we binge watch a lot, to be honest with you. And one of our favorites so far has been an ongoing series called Anne with an E, Anne who spells her name with an E at the end. It's a story of a, a couple, a brother and a sister, trying to maintain the family farm in Nova Scotia, and they're getting older and they need help on the farm. And so they make arrangements with an orphanage because they want a boy who can come and help them do the work. But the orphanage does a little bait and switch. And when he goes to the orphanage, he gets Anne instead. And interestingly, the brother, the older man, is one who always has trouble putting his thoughts into words. He seems to mumble a lot. He seems to speak in half sentences. He is as inarticulate as they come. But he's fascinated by this little girl who seems to jibber-jabber away constantly. His sister's not so enamored. She says she can't help him. So Anne sets out to prove that she belongs. She sets out to prove that she can do anything a boy can do. But along the way, a brooch is lost. A family heirloom means a lot to the sister. And she accuses Anne of stealing it. And it does something to Anne because she's not a thief. And so she runs away. And then the sister finds her precious brooch falling down between the cushions of the chair and realizes she's accused her unjustly. And she tells her brother right away. And he goes after her. And he searches for her. And it takes a while because Anne's a pretty resourceful little girl. He finally catches up with her at a railroad station. But she bolts away from him. And there are people who step in and intervene as if to say, Oh, man, what are you doing to this girl? And they want to know who he is. And he looks at her, and for the first time, he speaks with clarity and emphasis, and he says, she's my daughter. And Anne stops in her tracks. It's all she's ever wanted, to be someone's daughter, to have a home, to be accepted, to have possibility, to belong. Mark's readers would understand this word. Those deprived of their homes, those overwhelmed with persecution who want to belong, who want to be accepted and safe. Daughter. Same word Jared used for his little girl. I wonder if he understood that just as he loved his daughter, just as he's willing to to beg for her well-being, 
So Jesus has embraced this one that Jairus has judged as unclean. Jesus embraces her as daughter. She's more important than the rules, Jairus. More important than your definitions of acceptable and unacceptable. She's a human being, Jairus. Daughter. In the early Christians, drawn from the poor and the marginalized, they felt that word to the bottom of their souls. And the problem is the moral law of Leviticus 15, well known to Jairus, now says that Jesus is unclean. He's been stigmatized by her touch. And so it puts anything he might do for his daughter at great risk. And then the people arrive from Jairus' homes at you know, Jairus, your daughter has already died. Don't trouble the teacher any further. And you can kind of read between the lines there. There's no need to do this any further. Let's recover some self-respect here, Jairus. Let's reclaim some dignity. We can spin this. People will forgive you for being a, a desperate father. I wonder what Jairus thought. You couldn't blame him if he thought, well, maybe if he hadn't been spending time with this woman who can't come to my synagogue... Maybe he'd had time to get there before my daughter died. And Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. There's a lot to be afraid of for the first hearers of Jesus, a lot to be afraid of for Jairus. But it's like, you've come this far, don't go back. A lot of voices us are telling us to be afraid these days. You've got to be afraid of MS-13. They're going to cross our borders and infest our country. The problem is MS-13 was born in this country, and we exported it to Ecuador. Don't be afraid. Believe what you have just seen, Jairus. God's mercy for her, God's adoption of her. It's all bigger than you are. It's all bigger and stronger than your pronouncements and your flawed judgments. And for a people who kept hearing they were dirt under Nero's feet, it's good news. At Jairus' home, the professional mourners are making their mournful sounds and they're good at it. And Jesus asked them to leave, or rather the phrasing is that he cast them out just like he cast out demons before. You see, when Jesus says she's still alive, they laugh at him. They're inauthentic. And Jesus has no time for inauthenticity. And in great tenderness, he takes the child's hand. Talithe kume, child arise. And she gets up. Left unstated. What did Jairus do after that? Specifically, what did he do with this woman that he has defined for 12 years as unclean? What did he do about her? What did he do about all of his definitions of other people as less than? Our world has a history of picking a group and defining them as less and so we have the genocide of Native Americans. And we have the slaughter of Jews by Hitler. 
and we have the slavery of African Americans, and we have the abrogation of their civil rights. We have an LGBTQ community defined as as less than. But here, Jesus says, daughter. In the orchestra pit, they heard good news, and they heard challenge. What are we in the balcony here? It's still good news. It's still challenge. Amen.